simulation, this is as real as it gets. The number you have reached, 911, has been changed to a non-published number. You're listening to UCW Radio. In your face. Welcome to the UCW Radio Show. I'm your host, Lou Velasquez, and uh, thanks for joining us today. We have a uh, great guest lined up for the show today. He is Jeffrey Kay. He's an author. He's a journalist. He's the author of uh, the book, Moving Millions, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration. And if you look at Arizona and you look at uh, migration, immigration uh, in this country, especially immigration reform, has been a big topic of interest. Uh, so we're going to tackle some stuff with uh, Jeffrey Kay. He is in my opinion, uh, one of the foremost authorities on uh, migration and, and, and immigration. So uh, let's hear things from him. And I think you're going to find this uh, show, this interview, uh, very interesting, especially if you are in business and in politics. Uh, you got to hear it and you got to take a look at the book, Moving Millions. But Enough of that. Uh, we have Jeffrey Kay on hold, author, journalist of Moving Millions, and uh, let's uh, get Jeffrey on the show. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, welcome to the UCW Radio Show. I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your ultra-busy schedule to spend time with us today. Good to be here. Thank you, Lou. Uh, no, no problem. You're, you're more than welcome. And just for our listeners that aren't uh, too familiar uh, with you, which uh, I don't understand how they they <laughs> how they they wouldn't know who you are. Uh, you're probably one of the foremost experts on immigration. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, there are many people who consider themselves experts. I certainly do, and uh, if I'm one of the foremost. That's uh, that's quite a compliment. Thank well, you. That's what I think. That's what I think. And you you're all, you're an author. You're a journalist. Uh, you have a book, I believe, that came out this year, uh, Moving Millions, uh, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration. And uh, I, I want to get into that, uh, really, because uh, your your history, and we spoke briefly before the show, your history is vast, so I, I'm trying to figure out where to start here, uh, and I think the best place is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a journalist, have been for many years. I'm an immigrant myself. I uh, came with my family from England in the 1960s. I was a teenager. Came for the same reason that uh, most people do, um, who immigrate, and that is economics. Uh, right. My father was a jeweler. He made stuff with his hands. Uh, had a hard time making a living in England. Uh, economy was, uh, was in pretty bad shape, but was able to make uh, a living in the United States. Uh, the point that I often bring up when I'm asked about my own personal history about immigration is that we often people look at immigration in purely legal terms, but uh, most often there are uh, policies and programs that actually uh, inspire people to move, push people out, pull people in, and that if we're going to really understand the mechanics of what motivates people, the mechanics of migration, we got to look at some of these programs and policies. So what we came here in the in the 60s and, uh, I, uh, to Los Angeles. I've been in Los Angeles pretty much ever since, uh, working as uh, as a journalist in my professional life, uh, starting uh, in uh, in radio and magazines and newspapers. Spent most of my professional career with public television. Uh, still work for public TV, but now I'm an author and writer and uh, freelance journalist. 
well, and uh, the beat goes on. <laughs> the beat goes on, and uh, you know, coming to LA, um, you, 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 you can't escape, even if you wanted to, what immigration and migration has done to to this place. It's as if uh, the world was kind of put on edge, and people emptied out into in, in, into LA. There are more people from you name a city uh, that you know more more people from uh, South Korea than in the capital of Korea, and, and, and Armenians, and Chinese, and on and on and on, and li from little Armenia to little Chinatown to, to little Tokyo. Um, it's When I came here, uh, maybe one in ten people was an immigrant themselves. Now about one in four people are either immigrants or connected closely uh, to migrants. Uh, so this has been a fascinating place to grow up and see what migration has, has done. And so I've gone around the world uh, actually reporting on immigration issues, uh, looking at uh, what, what transpires when people migrate and what pushes people out, what motivates people to, to move and why they, why they move out from one place and move, move into another. And often we don't really look at migration in those terms. We tend to fixate on some of the same debates, recycling, if you will, the, the same issues over and over again. Uh, and I, I, I think we get transfixed by things that really don't deal uh, with the issue as, as it needs to be dealt with. I think that happens with most things in, in politics. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, there's always, uh, you know, uh, some sort of misdirection uh, away from the actual issue. And yeah, no no question about that. Yeah, I mean, because immigration is, is not only uh, a major uh, major interest, a major topic in the United States, but it's actually all over the world. You've been all over the world. Well, you know, I think in the United States we tend to look at the migration as, uh, as, as purely an American issue. We don't recognize that globally there are more than 200 million people uh, around the world uh, who are living outside the countries of their birth. And that every industrialized nation now, uh, industrialized nation is, is now dealing with the consequences of migration. Uh, you know, what happens when the economy is good and people are brought in to work in economies, industrialized economies like the United States, but then what happens when the economy goes sour? Um, we tend to look at migrants too often as expendable workers. Uh, and the history of migration to the United States has been such that we welcome people in during the good times and try to kick them out or prevent them from coming in or control migration during during the bad times. And the same issue that we see playing out in the United States in terms of how we regard migration and migrants is playing out uh, in mostly in, 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 well, not just, I was going to say Western Europe, but uh, it's throughout the world just as we're now trying to figure out how to keep out or support people uh, who we don't want anymore. Uh, Argentinians are kicking out uh, Bolivians, and uh, in Singapore they're uh, kicking out uh, people from Cambodia, and uh, you know the list goes on and on and on. Um, people are moving to find a better life for themselves, uh, are welcomed, as I say, during uh, during good times kicked out during bad times. And what we really need to do is to start looking at immigration through a global lens and understand what, what motivates migrants. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I guess a lot of people that, uh, they, they look at things narrowly, you know, when they, when they look at people, uh, migrating from one country to another. It's not just the United States, as you said, it's globally. I, you know, I've been to Africa and I've seen it. Where, right. and it's interesting right. to me, I'm walking down the street in Africa and I see people from, you know, from, uh, from Asi Asians to, uh, Europeans and they actually migrated there and they live, they live there. And they right. Well, I'm, you know, in Africa, the, what many people are doing is is moving from one poor country to another, uh, as as they are around the world, and certainly moving from Africa and trying to get uh, across the Mediterranean into to Europe. And uh, and the the situation in Morocco, for example, which is a country on the northernmost part of Africa, is pretty analogous to what's happening. Uh, what happened in between Mexico and the United States most recently, uh, with borders going up and fences going up as the economy get, got bad and people uh, in Europe try to keep uh, Africans from from moving across. Um, but in my contention is we've got to look at what motivates my migration. As I said before, what policies do we have in place uh, that that push people? And uh, for example, I spent. Uh, sometime interviewing migrants in the Central Valley of California, uh, where many came from Mexico, uh, came as a result of uh, corn prices exported to Mexico by the United States, subsidized uh, corn uh, grown by U.S. farmers. Um, and what do you do if you're living in Mexico and all of a sudden your community or your country is flooded by cheap corn you're a corn grower. You can't compete with the cheap corn that's coming in, but you know there are jobs across the border. Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to, if you can, move across the border and try to try to improve your life. And that kind of circumstances circumstances happening uh, certainly throughout Mexico, but also throughout uh, Africa, as people there, farmers, fisher people, try to compete with uh, cheap foods that are provided by uh, European nations or subsidized by European nations just as the U.S. subsidizes food. So it's those kinds of things that we need to be, be thinking about. We can't just focus on immigration uh, as, as a purely national issue. Uh, we saw what happened in, uh, in Arizona as people got angrier and angrier passing these laws, but frankly Arizona is not going to be able to set it uh, immigration policy any more than the United States can uh, simply sort of defy the laws of human nature. It's an international issue, and we need to look at it uh, through an international lens. Yeah, and I'm glad that you said that because a lot of people think that people migrate because they they need a job. And, you know, you have actions that force reactions, and if you put someone in a situation that they can't earn a living, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. They, they, and, and particularly if, if, if we're helping uh, to ensure that that's the case, a lot of, we've got to look at some of the unintended consequences of policies that, that we have. Um, and, you know, for example, going back to what I was just talking about with, with Arizona, um, it's really no surprise, looking back at history, Recent history to see what what uh, what why the uh, fairly stringent Arizona law that's now being challenged in the courts by the United States was passed 
sure you're familiar with this law I'm referring to. It was yeah, there's Governor Brewster. That, uh, that requires police officers, when they make a stop, if there's a suspicion that someone's here illegally, to conduct an investigation. And that was protested not only by many people in Arizona, but by the U.S. government. Uh, the U.S. government contends that really only the federal government should uh, have control over immigration. Jeffrey, can I ask you a question? I, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I know Governor Bruce did uh, he, they, you know, sign that, that bill, and it's aimed at identifying, identifying, prosecuting, deporting illegal immigrants. Uh, but isn't it a, a law, and again, I'm, I'm just thinking about this right now, that you have to have identification on you? That, that the police can actually, you know, stop you or me and say, okay, let me see your ID, and you, you have to present it. No, there's no such law. Uh, it, it, uh, if, if you're here as an immigrant um, with a green card, I believe you're supposed to be, you're supposed to carry that. Right. Um, and you're supposed to have that on your person. Uh, but there's no requirement that uh, American citizens have to carry ID with them at all times. I don't think you've come to that yet. No, no, so, yeah. Maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking far out. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> you are. Yeah, and, I do uh, think but, so. <laughs> right, but you know this law goes beyond that. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, if you've got a suspicion that someone's here illegally, well, living in a border state, uh, you know, many people might fit that description, whether they would have been born in the United States uh, or whether they came legally or illegally into the United States. Um, but as I started to say, I think the the law could be uh, fairly was, was could have been predicted in, in in a sense from the point that the Clinton administration started uh, militarizing the border back in the early 90s, as people were coming across more and more. The economy was bad in Mexico, and the uh, jobs were available in, in the United States. Uh, but uh, there was a recession, and people. Uh, uh, wanted to crack down on migrants, both in California, you'll remember, with uh, Governor Pete Wilson, mm -hmm. and throughout, uh, and in the Southwest in general with the administration of President Clinton. They decided to militarize the border in California and, and, uh, uh, and in Texas, and basically drive people who wanted to come across the border uh, through an inhospitable desert, through Arizona figuring that people would be deterred. If they saw that it was going to be dangerous, they would come. But they didn't change any of the conditions that led people to migrate in the first place, the conditions that pushed people out or the conditions that pulled people in. And so what you had was people kept coming, um, came through the desert, dying at ever-increasing rates as they risked everything they had and continue to do that, by the way, to come through the through the Arizona desert, knowing that there'd be jobs waiting for them once they once they arrive. So our policies are kind of contradictory. We essentially have two signs at the border. One says "help wanted," the other says "no trespassing." Um, but we've we've developed an economy that is largely dependent on the work of uh, of, of migrant labor. Much of that illegal. And that that's very true. Actually, I just to, to say this, I was watching something on television, and there was a, a famous uh, chili uh, farm, and they have these great big chilies, and they're on the brink of going out of business because they don't have anyone to pick their chilies. Well, that's what they say. Uh, th this was a U.S. farm, I presume. U.S. I mean, farm. American farmers make this uh, and have made this case 
for years and years and years uh, to justify their use of low-paid labor, uh, whether it's migrants from coming from Oklahoma or migrants crossing a border. Uh, and they all, the excuse is always we can't find anyone uh, who, will, who will do this work. What they often end, leave off is the end of the sentence, right. which is essentially we can't find anyone to do this work at the prices, at the wages we pay. Right. Um, so if you really want to crack down on, on migrants coming across the border, what you do is you enforce the laws that are already on the book and books and make sure that uh, people are paid a livable wage and have the right to uh, uh, collective bargaining and uh, have benefits and all the things that uh, American workers here have come to hope for and expect. And I guarantee if you start paying decent wages to people who we now expect to do menial jobs for nothing, uh, then uh, uh, all of a sudden uh, those folks who uh, 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 and now it said won't take those jobs. We'll definitely start taking those jobs. Oh yeah, particularly in this economy. No, without a doubt, if there's work and someone needs to put food on the table, they're going to do what they need to do. That's you, right. You know, and uh, it's just interesting how you, know, you, you mentioned that there's a, I guess, a miscommunication with uh, having a help wanted and then no trespassing sign side by side. You know, and this country is. I mean, we have everyone here, at some point in their in their family history, is an immigrant. Right, and I think that that's uh, that's obvious and easily said, uh, but I think that the wisdom in that is often not applied or learned, and that is people tend to romanticize the past and come up with all kinds of stories about, uh, particularly European migrants who trace their their migration stories back to the you know, early 20s or before the uh, turn of the century and will say, my family did it legally, which is what I hear a lot. What they, what they don't understand uh, is history, and that is if the laws that were, are in place today were applied back then, then, they, then those people would be here illegally. The laws are just much more strict these days. Um, and so to say, you know, we did it all legally, the situations, is, uh, uh, situations are not analogous. And I think that we would be better off. And a lot of the noxiousness and the hatred that I see in the, in the immigration debate might evaporate if people uh, had the wisdom to think about their own family stories and realize that they're not really a whole lot different from the stories of people who are migrating these days. It's the same story, just different era, with different laws in place. Absolutely, yeah. The you same know. things that are pushing people and pulling people uh, today are the same things that motivated people before. But as I say, you know, we, we, we tend to look at uh, migrant workers as, as pretty expendable. And one of the things that I do in my book, Moving Millions, is to... Uh, trace the correlation between economic downtimes uh, and attitudes towards migrants. And you can see that it, it runs pretty parallel. When the, when the economy goes downhill, we deport people. Uh, and, and that's been true throughout the history of, of recent history of this country, going back to 
the 1800s where we at first welcomed Chinese laborers uh, to work on the railroads and in the mines and in the fields. Uh, but when the economy went bad in the uh, 1870s, there were riots in Los Angeles and San Francisco, Seattle under the slogan, the Chinese must go. And eventually, Washington passed a, a law that excluded Chinese. Uh, it was the first law really aimed at a specific ethnic group, uh, in, passed in 1882. Uh, later on, in, uh, in the, uh, during World War II, the farmers put up a fuss. They needed to uh, basically bring in more migrant labor from Mexico. They said there was a shortage of migrants as uh, Americans went off to Europe to fight the war. There was an exemption granted. Mexicans were brought across in, in large numbers. But when the Depression hit in the, in the 20s, in the late 20s, then we rounded up migrants uh, those same people, uh, often rounding up some of their families too, people who had been who had been born in the United States and deported them. <laughs> Similarly, in uh, the Second World War, the Bracero program, uh, there was a deal made with Mexican with Mexico, the government of Mexico, to import people from Mexico to work in the fields. But when the economy went bad in the 1950s, the program canceled. And the Eisenhower administration put in place something with the nasty name of Operation Wetback, rounded up people and, and supported them then. Today, the Obama administration is sort of repeating history and supporting 400,000 people a year. Uh, the Obama administration claims that its priority is really to focus in on criminals, um, but uh, it's and and it is true that a lot of the work and the resources are going into finding and deporting migrants who have committed crimes. But a lot of the migrants, uh, their crimes have only been crossing the border more than once or have committed very minor crimes. And as a result, with uh, 12 million or 11, 12 million people now living in this country uh, without papers or illegally. Uh, what's, what's happening is very unfortunate as families are being split up, separated, because migrants don't live in a homogeneous uh, situation. It's not, you know, you won't go to a family and find everyone there is here illegally. Often there are, there's uh, uh, one partner who's married to someone or living with someone who's where, where one partner can be here legally and the other not. And then very often you'll have children who were born in this country who uh, uh, would be subject not so much to deportation themselves, but uh, certainly would feel the effects if their families were split up. And then you also have kids uh, who were brought over by their parents in, uh, when they were very young, uh, who themselves would be subject to deportation to a back to a country where they had never been and perhaps uh, in, uh, have to speak a language they don't fully understand, having been brought up in the United States. So the system really is, is messed up, and uh, we, at the, at the very least, I think, have to do something about uh, these people living in these mixed status, as they're called, families. Uh, to, it becomes almost a, a, a very sad human rights issue, uh, because no question in my mind that so many of the people who would be subject now to these laws are people uh, who were welcomed with open arms when the economy was 
going great guns. Well, Jeffrey, I want you to hold that thought. I want to get back into this. We have to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with uh, Jeffrey K. The odds of becoming a signed artist and having three number one albums? One in 100 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. And the odds of this performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. All right, we're here with Jeffrey Kay, author, journalist. Uh, he authored a book, uh, Moving Millions, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration. And we're back. Jeffrey, <laughs> thanks for coming back. Well, thank you for having me back. Yeah, let's, uh, let's continue uh, the topic that, uh, that we left off on. Um, because this, this whole uh, topic with uh, migration, immigration, and, and reform, and everything that uh, is going on now, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. And uh, I have one question to you before I let you continue on with that. Now, do you think that the immigration problem here in the United States, do you think that at this point, at this, this time, that the, um, the level of terror, terrorism, that's that's happening all over the world. Do you think that's having an impact on immigration reform or Im immigration policies in the United States? Yeah, I think that unfortunately we're conflating the issue of terrorism with the issue of immigration. I think they're two separate, but some but related issues. And but I think we need to deal with the issues separately um, because to, by by combining them, we really don't do justice to either one. Certainly not. Immigration, um, and uh, you know, if if you look, for example, at a jobs magnet of drawing people across a border, it's it's unrelated to terrorism and how we police the border and try to keep terrorists out. Um, so I think that uh, you know, often these kinds of very political issues get uh, smushed together, and and I think that uh, we. Need need to actually separate them. During the 1950s, um, when there was a crackdown at the border, or, uh, uh, the Mexican border, uh, there was an attempt to somehow conflate the Red Scare, communists coming across the border in, uh, uh, from, from Mexico uh, with immigration. And obviously those two were uh, separate, separate issues. So it becomes more more of an excuse to be to go broad based with this plight as opposed to uh, it being targeted. Yeah, I mean, look, look at the history of of immigration and uh, and anti-immigrant sentiment, and you'll see that generally over over the years, immigrants have been seen as pretty easy targets, uh, and I think that that's true today. Uh, and particularly given uh, the racial issues, which have uh, become, as I say, pretty noxious and corrosive. But uh, that's nothing new to the history of anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, Irish people were tarred with a similar brush as were Italians and Jews, and you know the fear was always the same, and the claims have always been the same that immigrants are crime prone and they bring diseases and they'll never assimilate they won't learn the language 
uh, and that's been those kinds of accusations have been made against one immigrant group after another. Benjamin Franklin famously worried about the influx of Germans coming across from Germany speaking German, worried that uh, as he saw signs going up in German and contracts being written in German and people running for office and speaking German, he said that uh, eventually you'll, we'll have to have an interpreter in the Philadelphia, uh, in the Pennsylvania legislature, so that one half of the legislature would be able to understand what the other half was saying. Uh, I, I don't think he needed to really worry about the influx of German migrants, but history is, is being repeated and with the same complaints and the same fears that uh, we've seen o over time being replicated now in the current day. And it's interesting how history repeats itself time and time again uh, with the uh, immigration uh, policy, but with a lot of things in politics. <laughs> you know, it's just something that continues on and on. Right, and I think that as with so many issues, and my focus is immigration, we, we uh, at our peril, I think, we don't really look back at history and understand the lessons could be and should be should be drawn from history. Uh, you know, the most important one being you know, do do unto others or don't do unto others as you wouldn't have done to yourself. Uh, and as I say, I think that we'd be far better off if in the immigration issue, just just one of many that uh, we look at our own stories, appreciate what happened to our own families, why we came, anti-immigrant sentiment at the time people were coming. Um, and really learn from history and apply those lessons today. Well, the, the, Jeffrey, the debate uh, for some time, I don't know if it's today, but I know it was in the past, that uh, when you had migration, you had you know people coming in taking American jobs, but weren't they taking jobs that Americans really didn't want to do? Well, yeah, I mean, we've, Think that, that situation has changed over time. Right. Certainly, they've taken jobs that Americans don't want to do. Uh, certainly, they were brought in to, as as the country expanded. Uh, a, a labor base was needed to work in the factories, to work in the fields. Times have changed, and Americans now see migrants as, as a threat. But I think it's true that we've come to depend on migrant labor, particularly in certain menial jobs, what's called the 3D jobs, the, the dirty, disgusting, or, or demeaning jobs. And it's, it's, that's been true not just in the United States, but also true in Europe, where it's migrants who work the fields, migrants who work in construction, migrants who work in the healthcare industries. Uh, so migrants you see concentrated in in certain, in certain categories of jobs uh, to do the jobs that Americans won't do or wouldn't do. So probably would do if they would pay a decent wage. But at the same time, as, as we've built an economy that's been dependent on migrant labor, unfortunately, uh, the sending countries, those countries that send migrants abroad, have also built economies that have become dependent on the remittances, as they're called, the money that's sent back by migrants back home. So, for example, you have the Philippines that sends abroad about a million people a year, 
that basically grows people as cash crops to go abroad, and many of them, as you I'm sure are well aware, work in the health industry, either in this country, in Canada, UK, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, elsewhere. Um, but ironically, and then they, they work, they often leave their families, send money home, the remittances, uh, but ironically, uh, they, uh, the, the healthcare industry in the Philippines is suffering from a shortage of nurses, even as the Philippines, Filipinas nurse the world, world, there's a shortage of nurses back there. Uh, so somehow what we need to be able to do is to see migration as a problem of economic development. We need to build sustainable economies, not only in this country, in the developed world, economies that are not dependent on menial labor or migrant labor for the most vital jobs, uh, but also help those countries that have become dependent on the remittances, on, on the work of the migrants who, who go abroad often, leaving their families behind. Uh, and we also need to look at migration, not just through the our own sort of selfish eyes about what do migrants mean for us, but we also need to be thinking about what it means for migrants to move across the border. As I started to say before, many don't come just because for the hell of it. They they make huge uh, sacrifices to keep the global economy going and to feed their families. When I was in the Philippines uh, for my book, Moving Millions, I, I met with some migrant uh, uh, activists who had adopted a slogan, which I think is a very powerful one that would help all of us to understand what it is migrants go through and perhaps reframe our, help reframe our thinking. And their slogan was, we dream of a society that will never be torn apart just for the need to survive. And when you start thinking in those terms, it sort of alters, shifts your thinking about and, and helps put uh, yourself or ourselves into the, uh, into the shoes of those people who are migrating to realize that it's not just a legal issue, it's not just a matter of people coming across the hell of it, but people who are making real significant sacrifices uh, and, and reflected, as I said, in that slogan, dream of a society, world that will not be torn apart just for the need to survive. It's interesting because people just see the end result. People, you know, people trying to migrate into an ex whatever country, let's say here in the United States, that's all they see. They, they don't understand, as you just mentioned, the dynamics of what led to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think if they went back into their own family trees, did a little digging, uh, they would understand. If they read those letters home, if they uh, understood what it feels like for a migrant to leave behind often uh, close relatives, children, mothers, fathers, um, it was a very difficult decision for, for my family. My parents knew they might never see their own parents again. Uh, just it was as it was a decision that was made by their parents who left Eastern Europe uh, because of partly because of anti-Semitism, Jewish, but also because of the economic circumstances that drove them out of Eastern Europe. Just at the same time as it drove uh, other Eastern Europeans who were not Jewish, Southern Italians, uh, out of uh, out of Italy, uh, Slavs, you, you, you name it, uh, in, in the 
and a great wave of migration to the United States and Western Europe. I mean, that's something that continues to happen, but now you have India, you have other countries where people are coming or trying to come over here, and it's, it's, just, it's the same thing. I mean, I, I, to me, I look at the United States, and I, I, I would think a lot of people do. It's a smelting pot. You know, we welcome everyone. They come here and they uh, build a life, the American dream. And that's the that's the slogan of, of this country, the American dream. You go anywhere in the world. You've traveled the world. Uh, so have I. And people, if they hear that you're from America, all of a sudden it's like, wow. You know, it's, right. like, it's like an amazing thing. Well, certainly America is a country of choice. And there are more migrants here than anywhere in the world. But as I said when we started talking, the, the phenomenon of migration is an international one. Right. And while the ultimate destination of many people is certainly the United States, if you can find a better life for yourself across a border, uh, whether that's moving from Zimbabwe to South Africa, uh, or from one poor country to a country that may be just almost as poor, but you've got an opportunity there, you're going to take it. And I've asked many people over the years, as I've dealt with the subject of migration, and I've really sort of enjoyed putting this to conservatives and Republicans, uh, in, in particular, who are anti, who might be anti-migration, to say, ask them the question: If you had a job that paid maybe three dollars a day, as many people do around the world, but you had the opportunity to move across the border, knowing uh, that you might be breaking a law, a civil law in this country, they enter illegally, uh, would you do it? And every person I've ever asked that question has always said, "Yes, I would." Uh, even though those same people in arguing about policy, will say, don't these people, what don't they understand about illegal? Well, sometimes uh, the practicalities of making a living and, uh, and supporting a family trump uh, civil laws, and, and that's clearly what's happening. And that's what so if people. we're going to deal reasonably and sensibly with the, with the problem, rather than the issue, rather than looking at it simply through a legal lens, what we need to do is, is understand that it's an international issue and understand clearly what it is that makes people. Well, let me ask you something, Jeff. Do, do you actually think that um, in, in the United States that they are, that they're going to have some sort of immigration uh, reform in the near future? No, I don't. Um, I think that's uh, kind of dead in the water. I think that most politicians can particularly since this last election, can put a wet finger in the wind and figure out which which way it's blowing, and uh, they got to add up the votes. I think that clearly the, there's a growing number of uh, Latinos who feel very strongly about immigration, and that's going to influence many politicians uh, to, in, in my mind, do the right thing. Uh, but others will be unmoved by that, uh, and unmoved by the need, and uh, see that there are other issues that will take precedent and realize that there's a vast number of people in this country uh, who uh, don't share some of the, the values that they might or don't share, uh, don't, don't completely understand the issues um, and maybe anti-immigrant. So I, I, don't, I don't see much hope for immigration reform in the near future, and I'm afraid that what's going to happen is uh, just a perpetuation of enforcement-only policy. Hmm. That's interesting. And Well, let me ask you this, Jeff. Now, in your book, Moving Millions, 
you you mentioned something. I, I briefly read some things, uh, but you mentioned something about politics uh, and immigration, uh, that they're strange bedfellows, and maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yeah, as you start to see, the, if you look at the uh, those people who have been most favorably disposed to migrants, uh, it's a combination of people who are fighting for uh, civil rights, migrants' rights, often people in the uh, civil liberties community and migrants' rights community, migrant, often many of the migrants themselves. But you also have employers. And employers, we don't seem to recognize, have been amongst the largest uh, group, uh, political group, most in favor of continuing of, of loose rules for migrants, migration, uh, anti-deportation, but wanting to get in as many migrants as they can, whether that be for either skilled labor or unskilled labor. They want to keep those doors open. They want migrants to pour in. Obviously, the more people who come in, the more workers you've got competing for jobs, the less you have to pay people. And it helps their bottom line. So then that's the bottom line. But it, so helped, yeah, it definitely helps their bottom line because their profit margins go up. Absolutely. So it's really in their interest, whether that be Microsoft or uh, the farm industry, uh, to make sure there's an ample supply of workers coming in from abroad who will typically ask for low wages than people who are born here. So that's where you have these the very strange bedfellows alliances that is with the employer organizations and with the migrant rights organizations. Well, that's, that's a good explanation of that, and I appreciate that. Uh, the title of your book, uh, it's moving millions, obviously, but how coyote capitalism fuels global immigration. Now, maybe you can uh, let our listeners know what you mean by coyote capitalism. Well, a coyote, is a, as I'm sure you, you know, is, uh, is a slang word for human smuggling. The job of the smuggler is to get someone across the border, pretty much the way a travel agent does. But unlike a travel agent, you don't really care about the welfare of, of your client. You just want to make sure they get across the border. You also don't really care uh, about what's driving them or what the condition, what's pushing them out or the condition, what the conditions are once they arrive. Uh, you're simply someone whose job it is you get paid if someone gets across the border safely. And that's, and so coyote capitalism is a term I've used to describe that phenomenon, uh, where often the bottom line is what's driving migrants without real concern for what's pushing them out or what's pulling them. Well, I know, I know, uh, your, your, your main thing is immigration, but I'm just, I have to, I want to interject a little bit with, with, with a, with a point. Now, the coyote capitalism, as you said, with, with them transporting people over the borders and and, uh, and things of that nature. Now, do you think that, you know, I, I there's something that's, that's out there a lot that people speak about, it, human trafficking. And do you think that, uh, that uh, people transporting people over the border, do you think that that kind of like trickles into human trafficking somewhat? Well, yeah, trafficking and smuggling aren't exactly the same thing. Um, trafficking generally um, it, it involves the, you know, it often 
the sex or for, for other, other, other purposes, right. uh, smuggling. Uh, and, and often in those cases, people are not willing. And in trafficking cases, uh, there's, there's uh, an antagonistic relationship between the, the people doing the traffic and those being trafficked. Um, uh, as opposed to smuggling, where you pay someone to get to get across the border, um, but in the final analysis, often it's the same things that are motivating trafficking and smuggling, and that is there are jobs to be done by those uh, people who are either smuggled or trafficked, whether that be in the sex industry or working in in farms, and there are people who are willing to pay the prices. Um, but again. You know, if we're dealing with immigration issues, that's almost somewhat separate from from, from the smuggling, from the trafficking issues. Uh, uh, again, we like to smush them together, but uh, uh, and they're related, but not they're not identical. Yeah, I apologize for throwing you uh, off course with that. It's no, just, I, it's not off course. Yeah, all, all courses are just fine. Yeah, okay, good. You know, because I, I think as we talked about politics, you know, when you look at politics, they kind of uh, take two things that should be separate, they bring it together, and say, okay, this is the end result, where they, they actually should be treated differently. Right. Yeah, but right. they put them under one, I guess, one roof, and they say, okay, here you go, mix it up, here you go, your mashed potatoes, and this is what we have. Right. You know. Well, I think that's uh, certainly the case in, in immigration. We certainly we look at immigration, and I think that uh, you know we, one of the big issues became uh, drugs, or became terrorism, or became crime committed by migrants, and all these are separate issues. Uh, we're going to focus on immigration. Let's do that, but let's also look at uh, crime issues, but they're not necessarily related to migrants. And, and in your book, you uh, you tackle each of the, each of these issues, right? A little bit, yes. A little bit, yeah. Because I think I think definitely uh, moving millions is, is is a must read for anyone that's interested in what's happening, you know, uh, not only in America but uh, in other parts of the world. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I think it definitely is, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one last question because people think. Uh, or they see migration as uh, they look at it differently. Okay, you know, migration for the most part, I, I think that people see it as uh, people uh, going to another country uh, because of the economy or driven by by the economy, and they want to go and have a better life. But are there other factors beyond that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think there are many factors that yeah. drive migration. And I'm focusing on economic migration or labor migration, people who move for economic reasons. But people don't move only for economic reasons. Uh, and sometimes, again, it's hard to pull them all apart. But people move because of war, because of famine, because of uh, natural disasters, um, and because of global warming. More and more. There have been all kinds of estimates. They're actually all over the map about how many people might eventually move as uh, low-lying low lands become inundated by water uh, and uh, global warming forces people to compete for scarce resources. Uh, that also becomes an economic effect, but you have people who are migrating for, for many, many reasons uh, just to, to, to improve their lives and to escape hardship. Uh, my focus has been 
economic migration. I think that's the kind of migration that most of us are probably more familiar with, particularly in the industrialized world. And that's one I think that we can uh, we can do most about uh, by addressing the problem in a sane way instead of uh, acting on our emotions, acting in a racist way, um, or and ignoring really our own histories and, and the plight of people who continue to cross uh, borderlines just to improve their lives. Right. And, I mean, look, th this country in America, we this is a capitalist nation. There's no, there's no going around that, you know. But from what I see, and from having uh, you on the show, and it's really opened my my eyes to a few things. You know, you you have countries. Uh, you mentioned the Philippines that monetize people, so that's their commodity. Right. Exactly. You know. And, yes. And they export them. <laughs> they export them so they can uh, they can benefit financially. Right. I mean, there are many countries involved in this, but uh, and and you know, if we're going to look at look at all these things, we need to kind of factor in the reasons that people move, and uh, and the Philippines is certainly something we can we can do something about. We have a very close relation with the Philippines, just as we have with Mexico. Uh, we need to be thinking about what it is that motivates people and the programs that we've got in place that, and the policies that drive migration. But as you said, as far as policies here in the states, you know, they probably are not going to, there's not going to be any reform anytime in the near future. Correct. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Jeffrey, uh, can you do me a big favor? Can, can you give me some information or give our listeners some information on how to find out more about you and where to get your book? Because I'm, I'm, I think this is a must read, uh, for anyone that's interested in, uh, in anything in this country, actually. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, um, my book was published by Wiley. Uh, came out this year. But to get more information about me and the book, uh, please go to my website at www.jeffreyk. Uh, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-K-A-Y-E. dot -E net. Jeffreyk.net. You'll have more than enough information to uh, find out more about me and more about the book. That's excellent, Jeffrey, and I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been an enlightening, uh, definitely an enlightening show for me, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be in, are, are enlightened just listening to what you had to say because you touched on a lot of things that I really didn't think about myself until you know skimming over your book and then you saying it. Uh, it's just uh, it's just interesting. I think anyone that's in business and politics uh, definitely. Uh, should take a look at your book because it, it may give them insight onto what's going on on a global basis with migration. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Excellent, Jeffrey. Thank you, and you have yourself a great day. And uh, for our listeners, thank you for listening to the UCW Radio Show, and we'll, we will be back with you next week. What is your major malfunction? All that be written. So let it be done. Ladies and gentlemen, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you.